I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Walter Isaacson about his new number one best-selling book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race, which came out March 9, 2021, and we did the interview in front of a virtual audience in Dallas on April 22, 2021. Enjoy. Walter, our audience today is made up of many aspiring, developing, and existing leaders. Jennifer Doudna, the winner of the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, is obviously a great leader in her field. What are her most important leadership traits that caused her to rise to the top of her field? First of all, she has a, first of all, she has a moral compass. Uh, and I think that's critical for a great leader. After she discovered the tool that Eric described that can be used to edit our genes, she had a nightmare. And that nightmare was that somebody wanted to learn how to use the tool. She goes into the room and it's Hitler. And so she brings together scientists and religious leaders and political leaders from around the world to say, these are the wonderful things we can do. We've heard about Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and sickle cell, but all sorts of uh, conditions that are just devastating. We can solve them. But it also opens up some moral issues that we have to go slowly before we cross those lines. And so I think having that ethical component to her, that's what set her apart from a lot of the other people I was studying and made me want to use her as a narrative character. The other thing is she knows how to form teams very well. I've written about Steve Jobs and you've interviewed people about Franklin Roosevelt. And to some extent, this was true of Lincoln. They like teams of rivals, creative conflict on their teams. They like people who are going to say no and disrupt the apple cart. Jennifer Doudna was the other way. When I spent time in her lab at Berkeley, she would always bring in anybody who was going to be a postdoc or a graduate student or an employee on one of her companies to meet everybody else and to see how well she or he fit in. Uh, I said at one point, might that destroy some of the creativity that comes from conflicts? And she said, different leaders have different ways of building teams. This is my own. I like a collegiality when everybody knows they have each other's back, but that doesn't mean it's the only way to do it. So when we talk about leadership, I always keep in mind, I don't write books that say, the seven secrets to leadership. Mm -hmm. I write biographies and everybody's got to look into, into themselves and say, here's the way I do it best. Mm -hmm. Now you keep your book moving by engaging the audience with the idea that the scientific advancements made by Ms. Doudna and others is like a great detective story. How so? When she was a, in middle school, her dad left on her bed the double helix, which is James Watson's account of the discovery of the structure of DNA. And when she read it, she realized it was like a detective story. You found out clues that would give you uh, keys that would open up the secrets and beauties of nature. 
And uh, she began to see science as not some intimidating thing where you have to memorize periodic tables, but as something that involves shapes of molecules or components that fit together. And these were all keys to how things work. And so she sets off, and what I hope my book does, is a journey of discovery where we go hand in hand with Jennifer Doudna and we watch as she races some of her competitors as they try to figure out how does this CRISPR system work? How would you configure it to make changes in the human genes? And so I kind of glad of what you said, Talmadge, because I wanted it to read like a thriller, like a detective story, as well as a journey of discovery, certainly not as a textbook. Well, I think that's one of the many reasons it's been number one on the bestseller list for so long, because it is so intriguing, uh, like a detective story. But speaking of her father, uh, many people in our audience obviously have children. And as parents, they surely aspire to help their kids develop toward fulfilling their potential. Now, you mentioned Jennifer Doudna's father gave her the double helix. But what else did he do? to inspire her to become a scientist? Well, he definitely believed in her because uh, she had self-doubt, as probably most of us do. And when she decided she wanted to become a scientist, she told her school guidance counselor. They were in Hilo, Hawaii, which is where Martin Dowden, the dad, was teaching at the University of Hawaii there. And the school counselor said, no, girls don't do science. But her father encouraged her and kept sharing her curiosity, taking her out on nature walk. If we want our kids to know the beauty of science, we have to also appreciate the beauty of science ourselves. It's like baseball. Our kids will love baseball uh, if we take them to the games or football or for that matter, art or music. Uh, and so what Martin Doudna did, even though he was a literature professor, is he decided to join Jennifer as a young girl on this journey of discovery, collecting seashells, figuring out why they spiraled, looking at fossils, figuring out the sleeping grass in Hawaii and why it curls when you touch it. And he fostered her curiosity. We're all curious about those things when we're in our wonder years. But at a certain point, grown-ups tell us, quit asking so many silly questions, and we lose a bit of our wonder years. Martin Doudna kept pushing her to keep her wonder years. And when she finally did do chemistry at Pomona, she told them she was gonna come back to the University of Hawaii uh, and be a graduate student there in uh, biology and or maybe University of California. And he said, well, why not Harvard? And she said, well, I'll never get into Harvard. And he said, you're right, you won't if you don't apply. And so she applied and she did get into Harvard. And until his dying day, uh, he was looking at the experiments she did, even though he was a literature professor, making her explain what the data showed and uh, helped to keep that curiosity alive. Mm -hmm. Now, you've written many biographies, as was mentioned in the introduction. This is the first one that you, you've written. It's, it's the story of CRISPR, but obviously a huge focus on Jennifer Doudna. And we have many women leaders in the, in the audience this afternoon. Was her rise to the top of her field in any way slowed by her gender? Well, initially it was, especially in school when you're told that girls don't do science. Uh, but once she becomes a graduate student, 
uh, in some ways, it helped her a bit in the science. She told me that when she was a young girl playing um, soccer uh, in Hawaii, she noticed that all the young boys always ran to the ball. I mean, we have that experience watching our kids play soccer and everybody runs to the ball. And she said, I love to play a position on the field. So I could see the whole field and I didn't always run to the ball. So when she's a graduate student in the 1990s, most of the men in the field of biology were involved in the human genome project, the sequencing of the human genome. Uh, it was led by people like Eric Lander and Francis Collins and Craig Venter, a lot of alpha males. And there were really not that many women involved. So Jennifer, along with a lot of other women, uh, including Jillian Banfield and Emmanuel Charpentier in my book, decided to study RNA, which is the less famous uh, molecule compared to DNA. But it turns out that RNA is quite a useful molecule. It's sort of the starring molecule in my book. As we know, it serves as a messenger to tell our cells what proteins to build, and thus we get our Moderna or our Pfizer vaccines. Uh, it serves as a guide, as Eric explained, to have a, 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 a sort of a scissors that will cut up DNA, and RNA even explains how life began on this planet, because what Jennifer discovered as a graduate student is how the shapes and fold of RNA allow it to replicate itself in some cases. And that means that in the stew of chemicals four billion years ago on this planet, when uh, RNA kind of jostled together, it began to replicate itself and is probably the foundation for life on this planet. Uh, so she's been successful partly, I think, because she thought different, as Steve Jobs would say. The main impediment to her as a woman, and it may interest some of you all, uh, was uh, basically in the world of finance. When she wanted to start companies, every banker and every venture capitalist in the room seemed to be a guy, and they were always telling her, this sounds like a good idea, and we have just the right guy to run this company for you. And she finally ended up raising her own money uh, with uh, Rachel Horowitz and others for the first few companies she founded because she felt that women were not given as much of an opportunity uh, in the world of finance. The good news in biology is that 60% of the people studying biology as undergraduates or graduate students now are women. So it's going to be a field that's really opening to them. Now, besides the detective angle, another premise of your book is that Nature is beautiful. Now, we all know that there's natural beauty in mountains and forests and bodies of water. But give us your thoughts on the beauty of nature in CRISPR and how it's used in gene editing. For three billion years, bacteria have been using this system to fight viruses because bacteria have an even bigger struggle with viruses even than we do. And it's a mysterious clustered repeated sequences of DNA that, as Eric said, was noticed by people working for a yogurt company that were trying to protect the bacterial starter cultures and noticed by a, a Spanish graduate student who was looking at uh, organisms that from extreme environments. And once they deciphered it, they said, 
What a wonderful trick bacteria have come up with. They take a mugshot of any virus that attacks them and store it in these clustered sequences. Mm -hmm. And if the virus comes back, they can get an RNA guide to chop it up. And that turns out to be quite beautiful for us in an era when we're fighting viruses. But it also shows that at the molecular level, miraculous, beautiful things happen that people such as uh, Jennifer Doudna or the Spanish graduate student study out of pure curiosity. But every now and then, pure curiosity leads to very useful discoveries and even tools. Mm-hmm. We've been talking, of course, Eric Olson did, and you have about uh, gene editing. And uh, people who haven't read the book might wonder, well, do you have to be a PhD scientist in order to do gene editing? So, Walter, uh, what's your answer to that question? No. In fact, if you grab the book, you can show the picture, either the author's shot or in the book of me editing genes. Because in the school I went to here in New Orleans, and you know it a bit, Talmud, our motto was uh, discomissagera agenda, which is we learn to do by doing. And so I said, I'm going to learn to do gene editing. And I went to the lab and I did it. Now, don't worry, Uh, we flushed everything I edited down the drain with chlorine. They're not part of the planet Earth at the moment. Uh, But editing genes nowadays, you can order online from companies like theodin.com gene editing kits. Well, you can do it for frogs or even the biohacker in my book did it to make, uh, and this is something Dr. Olson would know well, a regulator for myostatin, which regulates muscle growth, so he could try to give himself bigger muscles. The difficult part of gene editing is delivering them into the right body cells. And Dr. Olson's been a leader in that because uh, when you're doing uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy or others, it's not only that you have to edit the cells in order to create uh, the, uh, you know, the right, you know, make sure that the muscles have the right cushions, you have to be able to re-deliver those cells back into the body. So that's something I couldn't do. Only people like Dr. Olson can do that. Mm-hmm. Now, another important theme of your book is that science is a team sport, though, as in sports, star players have a big impact on the outcome. So is what separates Jennifer Dowden from the pack the fact that she's not only a star player, but she's also a great coach for her team, as opposed to her co-winner of the Nobel Prize, Emmanuel Charpentier, who appears to me merely to be a star player. You're exactly right about Emmanuel Charpentier, who's a wonderful person, but she doesn't form teams. She doesn't like commitment. She moves around a lot. So it means she makes some discoveries, but she's not somebody like Jennifer Doudna, who's creating companies and teams that are moving the science and the technology forward. I once asked Steve Jobs, what was the greatest product you ever created? I thought he'd say the iPhone or the Mac. He said, no, creating those products was hard. But what was particularly important was creating the team at Apple that could continue to create uh, good products. Uh, One of the mysteries or one of the controversies in writing history, as you well know, Talmadge, 
is to what extent is it the great forces of history and society that lead to change? And to what extent do individuals matter? To what extent can they ripple the surface of history? And of course, I believe it's intertwined, that it's both, that you need people who can create great collaborative teams, but individuals, when they're persistent and creative, they can make a difference. And so my book is about CRISPR, it's about Jennifer Doudna, it's about nature, but it's also about the mix of individual creativity with collaborative teamwork that helps make innovation happen. In fact, obviously, in your research, uh, you spent a great deal of time at uh, Dr. Doudna's Innovative Genomics Institute at UCAL Berkeley. What's the most impressive part of the teamwork that you saw? What, what impressed you the most about how they come together and collaborate and do what they do? Well, I'll give you one story, which is a, a little bit more than a year ago. Uh, Jennifer uh, dropped her son off at a train station to go to a robot building competition in Fresno, California. He was 17 years old. And at about 2 a.m., Jennifer wakes up her husband and says, we got to go pick up Andy. We, got, we can't let him be in this huge conference center you know, for this competition because coronavirus had started to spread and they had just shut the Berkeley campus. So they drive and they pick him up and they get back to Berkeley. And the next day, uh, Jennifer takes the entire team at IGI, her institute that Eric's on the board of, uh, and gathers a whole bunch of them and 50 leaders from around the Bay Area. And she says to them, all right, put down your pipettes, put away the test tubes you're working on in the experiments. We're gonna turn our attention starting today to COVID. And we're gonna figure out how to use CRISPR as a detection technology because our testing in the United States is a real mess at the moment. And how are we gonna create antiviral technologies that will actually kill uh, the coronavirus just the way bacteria know how to kill viruses. In other words, kill it without even having to use the immune system to do it. And how are we going to uh, create, uh, you know, other ways to fight the coronavirus, including helping with the messenger RNA vaccines that ended up working. And so it was the ability to take a team and inspire them. She said, this is not what scientists usually do, which is work as a big team on a crisis program like this, but this is what we have to do now. And she also told them, most of you like to remain in your silos, remain in your lane, to focus on what your specialty is and what your lab does. But now we're gonna to have to put everything into a big pool and we're all gonna to have to work together because this is gonna take all sorts of different types of scientists. Mm -hmm. Well, keeping uh, in that theme of teamwork, uh, obviously a key component that drives team sports uh, is the element of competition. And you point out in the book that competition is the fire that stokes the engine of discovery. So describe how the competition among scientists over the past few years in the field of CRISPR has driven the discoveries. 
Well, after Jennifer Dowden and Emmanuel Sharp and Jay were able in 2012 to figure out the components of the CRISPR system and how it worked in a uh, test tube, uh, there was a race that happened over the next six months. And that race is in the book, just like the race is in the book of uh, The Double Helix by James Watson, when he talks about racing against Linus Pauling and Rosalind Franklin and Maurice Wilkins to figure out the structure of DNA. And it's a race against a wonderful scientist named Fong Zhang at the Broad Institute of MIT, Harvard, and George Church, who was a mentor of Jennifer Doudna's at Harvard. They're all racing to see how it works in human cells. Now, that race has a lot of uh, payoffs. It pays off if you win with prizes and with patents and with the priority of publications. And it becomes a very bitter race. In fact, a little bit too bitter for my taste. There's still a lot of rivalries and hurt feelings there. But it caused Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, uh, with Emmanuel working in Europe, to work 24 hours a day, handing off the things as the time zones change seven days a week to be part of this race. And we all know, everybody on this call knows, uh, whether you're a lawyer or a journalist or a business person or uh, somebody who watches a kid's uh, soccer game, that competition spurs us to do better things. The difficulty is figuring out what's the best balance of competition with collegiality and collaboration. Now, another key theme of your book is the way that it shows that science is global. So in the field of CRISPR and gene editing innovation, give us the high points of what's been achieved by scientists in different parts of the world. Well, as I said, CRISPR begins with a Spanish graduate student thinking he's messed up the sequencing of the weird archaea and then bacteria he's found in salt ponds off the coast of Spain. And then the yogurt makers uh, from Danisco, which is a French company, one of them working in central France, the other, uh, Rodolphe Baringu, being the only person I've ever encountered who uh, was interested in food and so moved from Paris to North Carolina to study food, but he becomes a food scientist in North Carolina. And they work collaboratively to figure out uh, what we can learn from bacteria starter cultures. And then uh, there's Emmanuel and uh, Jennifer, one from Paris, one from Hawaii working in Berkeley, but they have two graduate students leading the way both from Central Europe, from near the Polish-Czech border. Uh, and so it was almost like a model UN, and the same is true with Fong Zhang's lab. Uh, there was, you know, a Arab Muslim working side by side with a Jewish kid from New York, and Fong Zhang having immigrated from China to Des Moines when he was a little kid. So it shows me the power of global cooperation and also the power of the fact that America has been a magnet for talent from around the world, and we always should hope we always will be. Mm -hmm. Now, you say in the book that the story of CRISPR is an interactive dance among scientists, inventors, and business leaders. So describe the interactions among the dance partners. Yes, I think as soon as uh, 
the notion of CRISPR was discovered as a potential gene editing tool. A lot of companies were formed, including, I think uh, Dr. Olson talked about Vertex, working with CRISPR Therapeutics. There was a competition, again, among the Boston folks and the uh, and Berkeley crowd. Uh, they started two different companies. But the, the businesses helped spur people on, just like Danisco, the yogurt company, had a lot of money to invest in figuring out how do bacteria protect themselves against viruses. Sometimes we think of science as a linear process in which basic science leads to basic discoveries, leads to inventions that are useful, leads to companies that commercialize it. But in fact, it's a bit of an interactive dance. And Jennifer, who was even considered working at Genentech for a while, knows that businesses bring a lot to the table, not just investment, but the idea that you have to focus on what we need to do. Look at how Moderna and BioNTech did when they had to focus on making mRNA into a vaccine for coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Now, as Eric pointed out in his opening remarks, uh, your book raises many of the moral issues that arise when genes can be edited. And in your book, you really explore that at length. Does the prospect of living in a world where there's a genetic supermarket and people could use gene editing to create designer babies, does that scare you? Yes, I think we have to be very cautious about how fast we go down that slope because it's a slippery slope. But of course, all slopes are slippery. And so we can do it step by step cautiously hand in hand. When people worry about the bad things that could happen in a brave new world 20 or 30 or 40 years from now, when we create designer babies, I say yes, but I want them to know the story of Ben, which Eric talked about, a kid with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Or every day I get two or three emails with tales like that. People saying, I want to show you a picture of my granddaughter. Or, I want to show you my son. Uh, here he is swimming, but he's got this, you know, genetic disorder and they say he's going to die. Can you help him? So my focus is let's start with those bad genetic diseases that we can cure because they don't involve multiple genes. You know, they're pretty focused on what it would take to do it. And then we can go to a few things where we're uh, doing more, like perhaps even um, taking on uh, problems that have multiple genetic and environmental causes, such as Alzheimer's and things, then also use it on cancer. Eventually, we may be even able to do enhancements so that if you can make sure that the muscles work better with somebody with muscular dystrophy or Duchenne muscular dystrophy, maybe we can increase muscle mass if we want to. We're already doing it with cattle. And so that's moving across a line from curing diseases to enhancement. The real line that we have to be cautious on crossing is when you do it with designer babies and you're doing it in reproductive cells like sperm or egg or early stage embryos in which the edits you make will not only affect the children, but all of their descendants and hence the whole human species. That's been done once by a rogue doctor in China in 2018. 
But I tend to think we have to be cautious there because not only are there safety and unintended consequences issues, but we don't want a genetic supermarket where the rich can buy better genes for their children and the inequalities we have in our society will not only be exacerbated, but they'll be encoded into our species and we'll have a genetic elite uh, like in Brave New World or the movie Gattaca. I think that would be a very nightmare uh, scenario. So I think we have to have some regulations rather than just have a massive race down the slippery slope uh, and let it be done totally by free markets and uh, commercializing it. Well, when you talk about the need for regulation, <clears throat> are you saying that our government ultimately may well have to pass laws? To well, make we sure have, yeah, we already have an FDA, and I'm sure that even if you're using it to do Duchenne muscular dystrophy at, you know, um, at the university here, uh, you have to have FDA approval. And that's true with any drug or whatever. Every country has regulatory agencies that says, here's the medical procedures that are permitted and here's the ones that aren't. I think you can also have, as, as Jennifer is helping to do with CRISPR, a meetings of regulatory bodies from around the world so that we can coordinate uh, as we do with drugs. I mean, there's occasionally some drug that's not approved here and somebody will fly to Europe or the Cayman Islands to get it. But generally, we can regulate drugs and medical procedures. It's not totally easy. Some people can do things off label or go to places or find a back alley, you know, fertility clinic that might do it. But yes, I think, uh, I think like any medical procedure, both the NIH will regulate how it can be studied, the National Institute of Health, as well as the National Science Foundation, as well as the Food and Drug Administration on what procedures are going to be allowed in hospitals and clinics. Now, as we've talked about a little bit uh, in terms of the, the CRISPR and how it's been applied to uh, the pandemic, you began researching and writing this book pre-COVID, and then the pandemic hit. So when it did hit, yeah. how did you think it was going to impact your story? Well, I knew it was going to take me a year or two longer to finish it, which was a good thing because it brought science home, brought science home to me, brought science home to everybody you know, which is like, all right, uh, maybe I should try to figure out what a virus is and maybe I should understand how we fight them and what molecules can do. So uh, I've, I've reached a stage in my career, if I can be so bold, to say that I can pick up the phone and call my publisher and say, guess what? We're going to wait another year or two to see how this uh, story ends. And we had the Chinese doctor who did inheritable gene edits. Then we had COVID. Then we had the Nobel Prize. And so I was reporting this as it goes along. And I think it adds to the sense that this book is more of an adventure story that's unfolding as we speak rather than a history or a textbook. You mentioned earlier how when Jennifer Doudna, you know, picked up her son at the robotics and said, OK, uh, the world has changed. We're going to direct all of our attention. And there were other people all over the world who basically made that same decision. 
And uh, you and I have been involved in something called the Better Angels Society. Basically, the better angels of these scientists' nature just emerged and came together. And and that's quite a story. Were you, were you surprised seeing how much competition there'd been, seeing the egos that were involved, that all of a sudden they would focus on the humanitarian side of their calling? I was inspired because, as you'll see, or you've already seen in the book, the patent battles, with all due respect to uh, your law firms and all, uh, and the fights over priority and who did what, that was beginning to wear and tear on me. I thought, you know, hey, everybody should be in this for more than just the patents and the prizes. And of course they were. But COVID came along and reminded them of that, reminded them that they were serving a higher purpose. I know when you, you know, when Eric Olson talks and talks about Duchenne muscular dystrophy, we know that doctors and researchers serve this highest of all purposes, which is to protect human life and help us thrive. And so the fact that the scientists suddenly put to put aside disputes over patent rights when they were applying CRISPR and other technologies to COVID, I think reminded them and it reminded me and I hope it will remind the readers and especially young readers who pick this up that yes, there's a whole lot of patents and prizes in this tale, but it's essentially about a noble endeavor, which is helping humanity. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now, obviously, uh, you've learned a great deal about the COVID virus ever since it hit and talking about the unfolding nature of this whole situation. Do you foresee more frequent viral pandemics in the future, which will need CRISPR solutions? Yes, but I think we've turned the corner in our million year fight or so against virus pandemics because we've learned how to make molecules, the new microchips. We learn how to reprogram them over a weekend. Instead of using binary code, we use a four letter code, but it's essentially being able to tell a messenger RNA, all right, we're gonna recode you and tell you to make a fragment of the spike protein so somebody can get immunity. Or in the case of CRISPR, uh, is not there yet, but we can create technologies that are antiviral treatments so that instead of just using our immune system, we can directly have uh, drugs and therapeutics that will just kill the virus in our system, the way the bacteria are able to do that. So we are experiencing not only this pandemic, but a lot of variations of this pandemic. And at some point, one of the variants will probably be able to elude the Pfizer vaccine I got or the Moderna one or some of the others. But we've turned the corner, as I said. It, we would be able, scientists would be able very quickly to recode the messenger RNA to take on the mutated spike protein or someday to create antivirals that'll take on the new shape of the coronavirus, or for that matter, the next new virus or bacteria infecting that comes along. And by the way, when you're talking about pandemics, my worry is not viruses. My worry is that, you know, we're fighting that war and we're taking our eye off the ball of bacteria 
which can also be bad infectious agents. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for my last question, in terms of the unfolding nature of this, and you uh, suggested in your book, and that is, do you anticipate a biomedical duel between the United States and China in the coming years on the order of the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union that we had in the 1950s and 60s? Well, first of all, part of that answer is yes, but that's a good thing. Meaning, I do think that China is slightly ahead of us in using CRISPR to fight cancer. I think you know, we've been ahead on things like a blood disorders such as sickle cell. And the more we race, the more we find ways to help humanity and we do have pretty good intellectual property protection and sharing of it. So cancer treatments coming out of China, I read about them all the time in the scientific journals, and that will help inform our own fights against cancer. I do think there could be downsides of the race, especially if we're worried that uh, you know, a country like China might permit designer babies to be created when we're saying, no, you can't add enhancements to the genes of your babies, or at least we're pausing on that. But so far, China has agreed to be part of this international uh, you know, group setting rules of the road that Jennifer and others have put together. And even with the Chinese scientist who did that experiment, he was put on trial and he's now in jail. When um, Tony Blinken, our Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, went to Alaska last month to meet their Chinese counterparts, it was a pretty brutal meeting, as you may have read. It had some, we disagreed, the two countries, on many, many things. Mm -hmm. But I know, because I was there in Washington talking before this happened, uh, that they put also on the list of things we can work together on and agree on. And gene editing regulations, rules, technologies, and technology sharing was at the top of that list. Wow. We're not going to do artificial intelligence. That's too much of a competitive thing, you know, that a country needs. But they agreed to cooperate on uh, medical uses of gene editing. And just like with the Soviet Union, when we were in the height of the Cold War, Henry Kissinger would go over there and they'd fight over a whole lot of different things. But then they'd figure out a few educational or scientific exchanges, and that helped lead the way to detente. Mm -hmm. Well, Walter, we can't thank you enough. And I want to tell everybody in this audience, uh, even if you're like me and have a phobia about science. Uh, this is a book you can read because Walter is such a great storyteller, you can understand it. And it really does put you in the forefront of where the world now is and where it's going. So there's a good reason why it's the number one bestseller. And I hope it stays that way for a long time. And Walter, thank you so much for participating in this program for the chamber. Thank you so very much. Yeah, I love the fact that you read the book of all those wonderful questions. They were really thought-provoking questions for me. Thank you, Talmadge. After reading Walter Isaacson's magnificent new book about Nobel Prize-winning chemist Jennifer Doudna and the miracle of gene editing, it made me want to go deeper into science than I've ever done before. Walter makes great stories out of every subject he pursues. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. 
Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late friend, let me start over. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bragan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.